Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, what could the Peace Act deal mean for the future of labor in Canada? We'll discuss that. Doug Ford's government is preparing to expand gas-fired power plants here in Ontario, a move that critics say is actually going to send us backwards when it comes to environmental concerns. And the Prime Minister says he has asked officials to investigate a top-secret CSIS report that warns the Chinese government has targeted Canadian MPs. Stephen Chase from the Globe and Mail will join us to talk about that. All coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The good news we got as uh, we started the week, of course, was that the the Public Service Alliance uh, strike that had gone on for a number of days was settled. And uh, it looks like it's going to be ratified. Everybody's speaking uh, in glowing terms about the the proposed deal here. National president of uh, PSAC is calling the union strike action a success. The union, of course, reached that tentative agreement with the federal government that, that secured wage increases meant to compensate workers for inflation, which that in itself is an interesting uh, aspect of this deal. Chris Aylward is the, the, the big boss, of course, of CEP, and he uh, says Canadians should be emboldened now with the result of this to actually ask their employers for raises to make up for the cost of living. Workers are just simply frustrated and fed up in the current economic context, and they're fed up with being left behind. Uh, our members took job action, went on strike, uh, and, and you know, so that they wouldn't be left that much further uh, behind, and you know, try to again close that gap on the uh, the rate of inflation. I want to talk about the deal itself and also about the implications going forward because uh, this may well be a, a precedent-setting situation here. And to do that, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Armin Yalnizian, who is a uh, economist and uh, Atkinson Fellow on the future of workers. Armin, great to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, my absolute pleasure, Mike. Let me ask you right off the top here, I mean, uh, as as we look at the deal and, and the, the, the aspects of it, and we're starting to learn more about it now uh, almost on a daily basis, uh, your thoughts about, I want to, before we get into the details, let's talk a little bit about the, the, the process. Uh, this did go on for about 12 days, invariably these things do not usually end well. Uh, there seems to be a mutual satisfaction here. How did you uh, see the process as it unfolded? First of all, I want to apologize for calling you, Mike. As soon as it escaped my lips, I realized, oh, my God, that was the last interview I did on this one. I, listen, I've been called worse. A- I, I, I've been called worse. And I, I, I know you're doing about 500 of these things today, so I do appreciate you, you taking the time for it. So just to get to your question, you know, the whole point of this process was to talk to one another and to listen to one another. Both sides moved. That is what negotiation means. To get to yes, you listen to one another and you try and accommodate each other as much as possible. You don't dig in. And in an era of more and more populism where you're with me or you're again me uh, type of attitudes out there where everybody's kind of stuck in their place, uh, it is so refreshing to see movement from both sides uh, and I actually tend to line up more with the public sector workers position because they are representing an issue that is not very well understood by people uh, in the broader labor market which is if lower paid workers and that's who these people are if they lose to in, uh, inflation in other words they're spending more of their income on housing food and gas It means that these people are spending less on everything else. So that's bad for business. And that means that we uh, will be looking at the economy slowing from almost no growth to definitely a contraction. And that's what this type of deal avoids is it makes those people earning the least doing the best right now. So I just thought it was a great um, 
way to move forward on a very difficult issue. And I was, frankly, I share your 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 surprise at the at the way things went because there seemed to be a sense of cooperation here. An awful lot of the time, when public sector workers go on strike, whether it's federal or provincial, uh, invariably there there's a polarization. This is the you know this is their side, this is their side, and and then the government threatens back to work legislation, and and nobody ends up being happy about the whole thing. It was a different mindset this time, wasn't it? That's how it felt, even though at the beginning of the strike, you know, we know that they didn't, they, these workers who have a starting pay rate of around $20 an hour, that's roughly $40,000 a year after taxes, that's a little bit less than $30,000 a year. And so they, they were really struggling and they cap out at around eight in the eighties, right? These are not the people working in the office towers or working at from home in their pajamas, making six figures. So this is a very different group of workers and they were without a contract since June of 2021. It has taken them all through the pandemic and the most historic year of inflation in 40 years to get to this deal and it only took 13 days of striking. So it was it, it looked like it, they were going to dig in for the long haul because it had taken them so long to get to this place. Um, and I, I was just really shocked at how quickly they found a way to both sides move. Um, and I really like the additional uh, part, which was a cash bonus. Y you know, I've written about this before, where I think that one of the ways of dealing with inflation is not inflation adjustment by increases, proportional increases to your income, but by some kind of flat amount that is connected to the average wage so that the people earning less than the average wage get more of a wage catch up. And yeah, those of us who are lucky enough to make more, we're inconvenienced a little bit by uh, inflation, but we still get that same cash package. Uh, it's like a reverse neck, a reverse tax, uh, sorry, a reverse of flat tax, where the people who are getting paid the least get the most help. And I think that's the way we should be tackling inflation. There was a nod to that in this agreement, but it didn't get built into the base pay, which means that um, as of this year, the, the worst paid members of this bargaining unit are made whole for inflation going up to 2023. But going forward, they start losing ground again. But that's in itself surprising because when we looked at what happened uh, economically, of course, over the last 10, 10 12 months, uh, you know, the, the, the monster of inflation has, has attacked all of us. I mean, and it's worst. It was about eight point one percent, I think, and it's it's, yeah. it's dropped considerably, which is which is a good news story, certainly. But I think an awful lot of Canadians simply, you know, threw up their hands and said, "Well, we're never going to get that back again." Uh, but that seemed to be something that was a, a major point of the negotiations here. And, and as you say, uh, at least in the short term, a number of people here actually benefited from that. Is this is this going to be precedent setting? Um, I don't know that they benefited, but they didn't lose ground in the short yeah. term. And it's a four-year deal instead of a three-year deal, which means that they're not back at the bargaining table next year, <laughs> which is great. Mm -hmm. Reduces the amount of drama. Will it be precedent setting? Yes, in two ways. First of all, that there was an acknowledgement that Canada's largest employer, which is the federal government, understands that there are different impacts of inflation on those at the bottom of the wage scale than at the top. And that is a really important thing that other collective bargaining uh, negotiations can bring to the table. Secondly, that they did not hold up the deal for work from home. Uh, you know, they less than half their bargaining um, uh, unit members have the ability to work from home. When it comes to the economy as a whole, it's less than 20%. So uh, we are looking at um, 
a minority of workers doing something brand new. And whereas it is incredibly important to get this right for reasons of productivity, you know, are these people working better from home? Are they working worse from home? Are they saving money uh, by not commuting? Uh, And do you, you know, horse trade that against wage increases uh are are you taking away management control are you adding worker control are you adding management's ability to attract workers by giving workers what they want which is a little bit more autonomy so these things are not going to get resolved at a bargaining table quickly right now it is happening in many workplaces though it is not the majority of workplaces and god bless them they decided like grown-ups we're going to put in a kind of asterisk on the deal and we're going to keep talking about these things and that's appropriate because it didn't affect the entire bargaining unit but and that's one of the things i was watching very closely too because uh, you know they made this an issue in the in these negotiations and and during the pandemic when there were lockdowns and and we were concerned and i think justifiably so but you know the, the disease and, and the pandemic and and the viruses uh remote working was something we said well they oh this is going to be the wave of the future and then as we started to, to wean ourselves away from the pandemic and the restrictions an awful lot of employees simply said yeah well that was then this is now everybody get back to work let's go uh, but the, the union stood firm on this. Is, uh, how's that going to happen going forward now? Is, is remote working going to be something that's going to be a, 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 an, an item and it's going to be a sticking point for future negotiations, not with, just with this union, but others? It will be for the unions where that work is possible. Again, 80% of people currently employed cannot work from home or do not work from home. That's what the stats show. So it's not going to affect most people. However, it could be that the people that are most likely to be organized and collectively bargain are in that 20%. So, you know, in the private sector, only 14% of workers are unionized. You can't negotiate remote. I mean, you can negotiate remote work conditions one by one. It's super inefficient. It's better to bargain collectively. But Mm -hmm. the difficult thing here is, and it was acknowledged by Mona Fortier, who heads up the Treasury Board. She's the minister of the Treasury Board and headed up these negotiations for the government. Every department in the federal government has different requirements. There are some jobs that are people-facing. There are some jobs that are not people-facing. Some people have to commute an hour to get to work uh, each direction. Some people commute only 15 minutes. What it, like, it's going to be different for every worker and every department. And so there needs to be some kind of variability in how the rules are set in a workplace. But that variability itself lends itself to, you know, kind of precocious or, um, not not rational management decisions on this by the same token there are workers that want to work from home that are doing more work that are doing better work at home because they're less interrupted by um meetings they can focus more and there are equivalently workers that are doing less work at home so you know it isn't a one box fits all story here and how they negotiate this how anybody negotiates this going forward it's going to be something to watch, but it's a brand new feature in collective bargaining that we haven't had to contend with before. And this idea of autonomy over your time, I think is going to be a really big thing going forward because of population aging. And we've got this tiny, uh, the smallest working age cohort supporting everybody, supporting the entire population that we've seen in 50 years. So their demands are going to get, their demands for well, their bargaining power is probably at the highest level in 50 years. Do they want more time? Do they want more money? Do they want both? Can they get it? I don't know the answer to any of those things, but these are the <laughs> negotiations to watch. 
Well, it's an interesting time, though, isn't it? I, I, I'm sure you saw the op-ed piece that was in Golden Mail the other day, uh, where they talked about uh, this being a precedent-setting situation here, uh, and they quoted uh, Robert Half's 2023 salary guide that says that about 57 percent of Canadian professionals feel as if they're underpaid. Thirty percent, thirty-seven percent, would actually change jobs if if they got even a minimal increase. Uh, because in the past, as as we've talked about, I mean, what happens is, you know, the employer invariably will say, well, that's the offer. Take it or leave it. I got a hundred other people that want the job if you don't. Uh, that dynamic has changed right now. So this this is probably the time for, for people that are in a, that circumstance where they feel as if they're undervalued uh, to try to make up some ground here. Well, I mean, you're touching on something that relates to what I just said, that there are mm. fewer workers as a share of the population or fewer people in the working age as a share of the population than have existed in 50 years. Uh, so they can ask for more. The question is which bosses are going to give it to them. And those are the bosses that are going to have the least problem in with respect to labor shortages. You know, uh, when somebody is making $20, $25 an hour uh, at, at a call center for the Canada Revenue Agency, uh, they have... Uh, better benefits and job security than you would have in the private sector. But they can make more money in many other departments of the federal government and in other parts of the private sector. So what are you going to choose, time or security? And that's that's in the eye of the beholder. That's whatever it is that that worker needs. But the degree to which wages continue to fall behind what you can make elsewhere will tilt the deck uh, one direction or another. And that's what we're going to be looking at is who is it that's having the most problem with labor shortages? And what does that have to do with their wages and working conditions? And there's a very tight correlation there. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see because as we've talked about uh, on the show, uh, there are a number of other uh, contracts that are coming up. Uh, LCBO, of course, being one of them, teachers uh, and, and other public sector workers, too, are going to be looking at this deal. And, uh, and it's, it's going to be front of mind for them, I'm sure, when they sit down at the negotiating table with uh, with various, well, bosses, I guess. But in case in those cases, of course, it's the government. Uh, Armin, always a pleasure to have you on the show and get your perspective on this. Thank you so much for this. Uh, have a great day today. Yes, thank you. And I really appreciate being on your great show. <laughs> Thanks so much, Armin. Armin Yalizian, of course, is an economist and Atkinson fellow on the future of workers. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Going on for a long time now about the federal government and the provincial government here in Ontario and their commitment to electronic vehicles. Uh, and they've set some, some well, pretty interesting guidelines as to when they think we should all be driving EVs. But uh, part of that discussion has to be the impact that it's going to have on the grid. I mean, we're going to be using more electricity, right? Uh, and not going to the pump as much, certainly, but uh, certainly uh, having to plug in. And how are we going to produce that? I mean, the, 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 can we do that with the existing system? Well, the answer, I guess the short answer anyway, is probably not. So governments are looking for alternatives right now. And uh, the Ford government here in Ontario uh, is raising some eyebrows right now by uh, suggesting that they want more gas plants to boost Ontario's electricity system, uh, much to the chagrin of some environmentalists. Uh, is that the way to go? Uh, how expensive is it going to be? And is it actually even going to be a, a, a practical solution to the challenge you had? Our next guest has some uh, thoughts on that. He is, of course, Marvin Ryder, professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Uh, Marvin, great to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for this today. Glad to be with you, Bill. 
You may, if you're an Ontario resident and have been for the last 15 or 20 years and, uh, and you play word association, if I say gas plants, and 90% of the people are going to say, oh, Dalton McGinney, yeah, the big controversy about that. Yeah, they went to you know, prison. and It was an ugly, ugly situation when they tried to do this before. Uh, and other people have suggested, well, look, at that that's way back in the rearview mirror. We don't use gas plants anymore. That's, that's old technology. Uh, are you surprised that the Ford government is looking at this as a suggested alternative? So my short answer is going to be no, Bill. But if you don't mind, I do want to look in that rearview mirror for just a moment. Okay, take sure. You back, yeah. Take you back 20 years, 20 years. In the early 2000s, first the Harris government and then the McGuinty government were looking at how we were demanding electricity in Ontario. And they came to an immediate realization we didn't have enough capacity given where things were going. In fact, if you look at the 10 uh, days on which we in, as Ontario residents demanded the most electricity, they're all in 2005-06. So a couple of things happened. Suddenly, we started using the private sector to generate uh, electricity, sign contracts, you build the capacity, we guarantee we'll buy that electricity from you at, at this rate for the next 15, 20 years. We encourage conservation in a big way. And we also encourage individuals to install things like solar panels on their roofs, and then they could sell that electricity back into the grid. The amazing thing is that the trend we saw from 2000 to 2005 never materialized. Today, in 2023, we have in Ontario generating capacity of 37,000 megawatts per day. Let's put that number out there again, 37,000 megawatts per day. In our worst day, in 2022, we consumed 22,600 megawatts. So that means we are we have the production capability to produce about 65% more electricity than we need every day today. However, here we are 20 years later and the exact same thing is happening. We're looking into the future. We're saying, wow, if we all switch over to those electric vehicles and they have to be charged. And so people have projected 10, 15 years into the future. And the conclusion is, even though today we've got much more generating capacity than we need, we're going to need more. And that, for instance, is why the provincial government has extended the life of the various nuclear plants that were supposed to shut down. This is why they're talking about gas. And the one advantage to a gas plant you have is that you can start it up or shut it down fairly quickly. So today we use natural gas plants which only account for about 10% um, of the electricity we consume in Ontario, but we tend to use them on those days that we have heavy demand because we can start them up, produce electricity. Oh, oh, look, it's gotten cooler. We'll turn it off and we can turn them on and off pretty easily. You can't do that with nuclear and you can't really do that with hydro or water generated power. So we use them as boost capacity. They're really easy to build. They're really easy to operate. The problem of course is if, if we're moving to electric vehicles to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, but then we have to burn greenhouse gases to get electricity, what have we exactly accomplished here? So the hope had been, the hope had been that seeing this gap or this potential gap between what we produce and what we might demand, this government, along with the provincial, with, along with the federal government, might invest in green energy production. One way to do that, Bill, uh, our good friends in Quebec, generate a lot more electricity than they need uh, thanks to dams that use water power. Mm -hmm. Why don't we sign a contract with Quebec at a relatively cheap rate and that'll guarantee us 
a supply of electricity. But so far, no one seems to want to do that. Why don't we do something with wind? Why don't we do something with, with solar? And yes, that would mean we need some battery technologies. But the federal government is prepared to subsidize that, bring the cost of it down through its green energy programs. But for whatever reason, Doug Ford seems to be fixated on the the easy, even though not a, a green solution of gas plants. But are the others reliable, though, Marvin? That's the criticism I keep hearing about, for instance, wind and solar, uh, that, that you, know, you can't, if we're going to put that much more pressure on the grid in the upcoming years because of EVs, for instance, uh, that you've got to have something that you can say, yeah, that's going to be there, no matter what the weather's like, no matter what the wind is like, no matter how many cloudy days we have. I mean, there's a number of different you know scenarios that people are developing here, uh, that this is a sure thing, and let's just get the sure thing going. Is, it, does that make sense? It does in a way. So I, I don't think as I look forward 10, 15 years that we'd ever get rid of natural gas because we have that ability to turn it on, generate electricity immediately on those days we need it. Now, the, the kick with solar, of course, it's great to generate solar energy, but you can only bring that during the daytime hours. Mind you, that's also when our peak demand is during daytime hours. But if we could institute some battery systems that on those days that we produce more electricity than we need, we could store it. Wind is the same way. Wind is great as long as there's a bit of a breeze. And these turbines don't need much breeze to move, but they do need a breeze. If you have a, a period of time, we'll call them doldrums, in which there's no wind at all, then what are you going to do? So it's a mix. What we need is a mix. We shouldn't rely on any one source of power. But it does seem like Doug Ford and his energy minister have an absolute fixation, first on nuclear, and then number two on, on gas plants. There are other alternatives, and I just I wish they might explore them a little bit more. And, and the nuclear thing is interesting, and I'm glad you brought that up because I, I got the impression probably eight nine months ago uh, that they were getting set to kind of phase nuclear out. I mean, you know, the the, the, the plants are older here in Ontario, uh, very costly to do the upkeep on these or to do the renos on them. Uh, and and there was even some talk at one point about maybe you know shutting down Pickering or just but now they've they've changed their minds about this and I guess it's because of this this commitment to EVs right now uh, and and they're I don't know if they're scrambling to catch up right now but it's going to cost a whack of money to to revive Pickering uh, and and look at plants like that but but your point is well taken gas plants you can do relatively in a short period of time it takes a long time to to build a nuclear plant and get it up to speed doesn't it right so first again if you don't mind me going back. When Dalton McGinney got into trouble, you might remember these were going to be two gas-fired uh, electricity generating plants, one in Oakville, one in Mississauga. And, oh, we don't want those in our backyard. We don't want those in our backyard. But, again, the trick is you want to generate electricity close to where it is consumed. Why? Because as you transmit electricity over a distance, you lose electricity. It leaks out of the system the longer you have to transmit it. And so uh, the thinking again was these are population growth centers. Look at how Mississauga has grown just on its own. It's over a million people. Oakville is growing. Um, uh, Milton is growing. So let's put them where the people are. Uh, and that made that made perfect sense. The problem with the McGinty deal was that, again, there was the private sector building this capacity. If the private sector is going to take that risk, the government has to sign a contract. And in fact, what Doug Ford seems to be willing to do today is sign a contract guaranteeing a private contractor that if you build a gas plant, we'll, build, we'll buy the electricity you generate for the next 20 years, even if, even if the federal government turns around and says, turn that off, that's too much greenhouse gas, we'll still pay you regardless, 
And he's heading himself towards the exact same kind of a, a scandal that Dalton McGinty had. He too signed one of those no cut contracts. Uh, and it turned out back when this all hit the fan roughly 15 years ago, we didn't need that extra uh, generating capacity and we don't need it today. So this again is a gamble on what the future demand is. I'll just chip in, Bill. To me, the thing that worries me at this moment, not is so much about generating capacity, but do we have the ability to deliver these things to homes? Why am I saying that? Because once you buy an electric vehicle, you're not really going to go to a filling station somewhere and fill up with electricity. Although if you need it when you're on the road, sure. But most of us are going to plug our vehicles in at home. So what is our home delivery grid like? Can each house do that? And my understanding is there are many, many, many homes that don't have that ability. You need a, a better service to the home, and then you need to have the, the wires running down the streets capable of delivering that. I think that's a key investment we need to be making. I, again, the challenge is if I need the electricity, say in uh, the year 2030, this is 2023, you can't build anything just overnight. So you have to take some direction and start now to be ready for them. I, I'm just fearful that, like, you know, as you say, 10, 12 years from now, we're going to be sitting here looking at our, that situation and say, did anybody think this thing through? Uh, and I'm not so sure what the answer is right now. Marvin, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Absolutely, Bill. Thank you. Take care. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. My son uh, died by suicide back in 2017, and he was uh, just like any other student. He had a part-time job. He was looking forward to going to post-secondary. Um, he had friends. He went to the school dances. That's uh, Burlington MPP uh, Natalie Pierre, who uh, was one of the driving forces, we're told, in uh, the, uh, the changes and the improvements, as many people are characterizing them, uh, with the, the new curriculum that uh, Education Minister Stephen Lecce uh, announced just a couple of days ago, including a, a number of mental health initiatives. Uh, uh, joining us to talk about this and a couple of other things, so please to welcome back to the program Colin DeMello. Colin, of course, is Queen's Park Bureau Chief uh, for Global News. Uh, Colin, great to have you with us again. Uh, I want to touch on, on the mental health programs in, in schools, first of all. Uh, and, and the work that the government has done on this, and, and basically, I guess, responding to uh, a, a public push for this, especially from uh, from Natalie Pierre. Yeah, I mean, this is a public push and an internal push as well, and it really goes to show you the strength of, uh, you know, the determination that Natalie Pierre had. I mean, so her son, Michael, had passed away at the age of 17. He had taken his own life. And, and she had indicated yesterday that you know, the signs weren't really there, that they were kind of surprised by what had happened, obviously. Um, she had said that the, the night before, he had gone out to go see some friends. He'd gone to work. He had done all the normal things uh, that she would have expected a teenager of his age to have done. They had gone for a tour of university, as an example, you know, giving her the indication that there was something to look forward to, and then he had taken his own life. And I, for her, there was this realization that perhaps there aren't the supports in place to, you know, help students identify what they're going through and identify how to be able to resolve those situations, when to get help and who to get uh, help from. And that's why the government, you know, thanks to a lot of the advocacy work that Natalie Pierre did, both when she was a private citizen and then as an MPP, the government is bringing forward changes that are going to start this fall, but become mandatory by the fall of 2024. 
in grade seven and grade eight in the health and physical education curriculum. So, you know, a phys ed, basically, there's going to be a component of, of learning about um, mental health literacy, right? How to manage stress, when to identify that situations are getting to be a bit overwhelming for you. And, and identifying those trigger points as well within a particular child and helping those those children understand, you know, when to get help and how to be able to identify uh, that, that help. And then in grade 10 in the career studies course, it, there's a doubling down of that. Again, reinforcing those ideas and, and showing kids that they can get help at school, exams, homework, uh, having to decide what to do with the rest of your life gets a bit overwhelming. It's interesting. And by the way, the, the timing of the announcement is, is not coincidental. May is Mental Health Awareness Month. And uh, so this seems to be very, very timely. You know, what's interesting about this as well. Uh, she's the, the MPP for Burlington, of course. Her predecessor, Eleanor McMahon, uh, who was a liberal at the time uh, in, and actually in the cabinet, was also a very proactive member of, of the legislature, wasn't she? I mean, after her election, she pushed very, very hard uh, for improved road safety, especially for cyclists, and, and that led to more legislation, too. So uh, I guess there's something about Burlington, I guess, and the, they're very proactive, and, and they're not just going to sit back and say, I'm just going to be a backbencher. Uh, they want to get things done, and, and credit to, to Natalie Pierre for the work that she's done on this uh, going forward and the way that the, uh, the province is moving so swiftly on this. Uh, that's the good news. The other element of this that I know you've been covering, Colin, is, is a, a, some musing, I guess, by the education minister, uh, Stephen Lecce, uh, that he'd like to introduce uh, what they call private mediation uh, for contract talks. And uh, the, from what I'm told, the teachers' unions are, are not really happy about that idea. Well, the contract talks have been you know, really stalled for a very long time. It, it, it's, it's tough to get a, a, an accurate view or window into exactly what's happening at the bargaining table, because obviously you're either hearing about it through the eyes of the government or through the eyes of the union. And I, I would argue that none is going to be a reliable narrator when they are obviously, uh, you know, party to those negotiations themselves. However, we do know that the contract expired in August of last year. So this is an extraordinarily long time for them to be without a contract. We haven't really seen a ramping up of those negotiations either, right? They're, it's not like, you know, we're, we're hearing about last-minute talks or any deadlines being set. And the unions haven't even gone through those processes that they need to go through in order to even get to a strike, right? No strike votes have been taken. No, a no board report has not been requested or, or issued. So it, it kind of seems a bit out of the blue that the government would want to skip a lot of steps and go right to private mediation. It does signal that the government is looking to kind of, you know, rip the Band-Aid off, get these talks done as quickly as possible with as minimal bloodletting as possible. You have to remember that a lot of this bill is being done in the context of what happened with CUPE in the fall. The government yeah. went right to the limit. They imposed a contract, used the notwithstanding clause to impose the contract, and almost triggered a general strike in opposition of all of that before backing down. So the government is incredibly scarred and a bit wounded by everything. Uh, parents, I don't think, have an appetite either for any kind of uh, you know, labor disruption. And so both sides seem to be kind of taking a bit of a laissez-faire, chill approach to the whole thing. But this private mediation will be an interesting development in these negotiations. And now we have to kind of see whether the unions are going to accept it and whether they want to kind of move forward in a, in a mediated way rather than um, you know, actually negotiating at the bargaining table. 
Yeah, because I'm getting the sense the short answer to that is no. I mean, we had Karen Littlewood uh, from the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation on the program last week, uh, and and she indicated that they're still far, far apart on a number of key issues right now. And and what they're looking for is transparency, and this seems to be the government going in the opposite direction. Absolutely. I, I mean, you know, not to take away anything from the mediator. I mean, we have to we have to kind of look at the fact that Bill Kaplan, who is tr- typically a mediator who they use in these negotiations, has been incredibly successful in the past in getting both sides to kind of, um, you know, see eye to eye, right? He typically will, you know, meet with them at the downtown Sheraton Hotel in Toronto, uh, and he'll basically go from room to room to room, back and forth, back and forth, kind of asking them, okay, well, we've, we've been able to kind of make headway here. Is this okay with you there? And kind of chip away around the edges until they can come up with a contract. So, you know, perhaps it's a signal that the government isn't looking for a fight, that they're looking for, you know, more of a, an adult to be in the room to kind of um, help settle both sides. Uh, but it, it's, it's really difficult to tell whether the two sides are at an impasse at this stage or the, the government senses that they're going to be in an impasse, which is why they're trying to seem like the adults in the room. But, you know, what the minister said yesterday about wanting to pressurize the table is going to be really interesting from the perspective of those unions. So we have to see where the unions take this now. Exactly. Well, we'll be watching for your reporting on this on Global News at 530 and 6, as always. Colin, thanks for this. Uh, have a great day today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. That work has already begun. So there is a plan in place to stand up uh, that particular office within my department. Um, The budget lays out additional appropriations to uh, give it additional resources. uh, And this is something that uh, we are going to move forward with very quickly and urgently. That's uh, Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino uh, talking about uh, the Foreign Agents Registry uh, that many people have been calling for that uh, the Prime Minister seemed reluctant to actually move on. Uh, but it looks like that's going to be happening anyway after some discussions with U.S. officials. Uh, and not a moment too soon, uh, based on uh, some of the stories we've heard over the last couple of days. Uh, welcome back. This is the Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton. Uh, the registry could have come in very handy uh, with uh, the news yesterday that uh, one uh, MP in particular uh, was being targeted uh, by Chinese officials uh, for uh, his speaking out about, uh, well, human rights violations with Uyghurs and a number of other things. Of course, we're talking about Michael Chong, the conservative uh, MP, who uh, actually just recently uh, came back from an overseas trip uh, talking about uh, some of the Chinese indiscretions, shall we say, and uh, being targeted by, uh, well, a, a Chinese officials. And, and uh, the government finally, finally seems to be reacting to this. Uh, the reporting on this, uh, brilliant as always, of course, uh, comes from the Globe and Mail. And uh, Stephen Chase, who is the senior parliamentary reporter for the Globe and Mail, uh, joins us to talk about this. Uh, Stephen, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for this today. Oh, glad to be here. Uh, the longer the, the prime minister seems to drag his heels on this, the more stories we start to hear. Uh, the latest one, of course, being uh, with uh, what happened with uh, Michael Chong and his trip uh, at, at not too long ago. Uh, and, and it was pretty blatant here. Uh, now, the indication I got from question period yesterday, according to your reporting here, was uh, the, it seems as if the government knew this was going on, but didn't warn Mr. Chong about this at all. We don't have any evidence that the government knew what was going on. We made clear in our story on Monday uh, that uh, we don't know whether elected officials read this report. Just a bit of context, we're talking about a report, basically sort of an overview of uh, uh, Chinese state interference in Canada that was prepared in July 2021, just just weeks before the election, the last uh, campaign began. 
and it uh, lays out sort of the from soup to nuts everything that's going on. And, and in that report, it says we are a prime target because we're a Five Eyes country. That is, we're part of the Intelligence Sharing Alliance, and because we have a reputation uh, that, that if it can be harnessed, we can. They would like to see us, for instance change our positions on a number of their foreign policy issues and so on. But what it does say is that there's no, um, it's, it's low risk and high reward in terms of interference in Canada because we have no disincentives, no obstacles uh, to that, like a foreign registry or, you know, indictments, criminal indictments of foreign interference actors to sort of make an example out of them. And in that report, it talks about Mr. Chong. And, and But we don't know, this is a report prepared by the Intelligence Assessment Bank, uh, sorry, it's, Intelligence Assessment Branch of CSIS, and we don't know if, if the sixth floor of CSIS gave this to their gave this to the elected officials or not. That's a theme, though, isn't it, Stephen? As we've heard from from some of these uh, stories about foreign events, and you've been doing some great work on this, uh, you and Bob Fife, uh, that uh, it's almost of well, I didn't see that report. That that seems to be the attitude to so many officials here. I mean, CSIS seems to be grinding these things out and, and giving information. Uh, I I don't know where the buck stops. It's uh, these things have got to be in somebody's desk drawer someplace. If if nobody's reading them, then why not? Right. So what what happened yesterday was that uh, the prime minister was asked about this in question period, and he did say that. Uh, this is unacceptable. He kind of acknowledged he didn't he didn't try to, you know, play it down or anything. And he said he would investigate himself on why and why nobody told Mr. Chong, why nobody took any action and so on. And why, of course, uh, the Chinese diplomat who's figured in this story, but also in other stories, Zhao Wei, uh, why he's still accredited as a diplomat in Canada. Uh, good question uh, that the government didn't have an answer for this. Just a couple of lines here from your report. I just want to read for our listeners. Uh, the spy agency said that an MSS officer sought information on an unnamed Canadian MP's relatives, and we know who that MP is, who may be located in the People's Republic of China for further political sanctions. Uh, this effort, according to the CSIS report, is almost certainly meant to make an example of this MP, who is Michael Chong, and deter others from taking anti-PRC positions. Uh, that's chilling to, to, to know that they went to this extent. Uh, I mean, we hear that line. That's, it's like an old, you know, cliche line from the movies. You know, we know who your people are. We know who your friends and relatives are. Yeah. Uh, if you don't do what we say to, to do, uh, they're going to suffer, not just you. Uh, and Mr. Chong has relatives and in, in family yeah. in Hong Kong, and he has made a a point of not communicating with them since uh, 2021. The the thing he became famous for that year was sponsoring this motion, condemning China's conduct in its Xinjiang region and its genocide of the Uyghur people. Uh, but he was then sanctioned by China uh, personally. He was uh, travel banned and other sanctions. And then he has not contacted his family in Hong Kong since then. Of course, Hong Kong is not what we what it once was. It's no longer a British colony with Western style. Freedoms. It's now uh, basically a, a part of the authoritarian state of China, and and you have to wonder if this is is going on. As I say, CISA seems to be aware of these sorts of things. Is is there a, a hesitancy here, Stephen, that the government doesn't really want to do this? I mean, I, I go back to uh, the first couple of discussions that you reported on about uh, doing something about a foreign agent registry. And it was the prime minister that basically said, "Oh, whoa, let's hold on here. Let's let's not rush into this." Where others were ready to to, to get that thing started right away. Is does the buck stop at the top here? Well, ultimately, I mean, you know, it's become pretty clear that Mr. Trudeau uh, knows what should be done. He's been told there was, in fact, a memorandum of the cabinet that we reported on earlier this year that was that was approved last year 
for efforts like a foreign registry, but also several other important measures that don't get as much attention. For instance, the one problem with CSIS is its hands are tied, its, its mouth is sort of gagged in a sense. It can't tell, it can't share uh, intelligence gathered, uh, precise intelligence gathered to people. It is prevented from doing anything but speaking in, in vague language. And so there's a number of measures, including the ability to make CSIS uh, give it a more free hand and actually warning people more explicitly about the problems. Often we talk to people at universities about, you know, why are you why are you working with this Chinese defense military university? And they say, well, CSIS didn't warn us. And in fact, what happens is CSIS comes around, they talk in generalities, but they don't give them specifics. And that's because of their mandate. So one of the other measures that's been sitting on the on Mr. Trudeau's desk, uh, you know, metaphorically for the last year is is that. And I juxtaposed this with the story from a couple of weeks ago that you reported on about a very similar circumstance uh, in the United States, in New York, uh, where the FBI uh, got wind that there were Chinese diplomats that were doing this sort of thing. And they, they first of all, they arrested them uh, and, and booted a bunch of people out of the country and said, you're out of here. That's, that's all there is to it. Uh, we don't seem to want to take that, that kind of action here. It, it, it just, it's mind-boggling that our, our government seems to be just standing here and watching it. They're aware of who this individual is. They're aware of what he was doing. Uh, yet he's, as we speak here today, he's probably still at work in Toronto. Absolutely. And, and, you know, what we really need to stress is, you know, China, the Chinese state has changed a lot in the last eight years under Xi Jinping. It's become far more aggressive and far more interested in, in basically meddling in, in, its, in other countries to suit its own ends. So, you know, there is, there's been a change, uh, a mindset change uh, towards China, and it doesn't seem to have filtered down to, or up to the elected level as, as fast as it has to filter through the sort of intelligence and defense community. Well, and and you know, historically, I mean, we even go back to the decision about you know five G and Huawei, and we were the last, by the way, of the G seven nations to actually uh, say thanks, but no thanks to Huawei. And and I know our our partners were always questioning what's what's taking you so long. This is a no brainer. Yet the prime minister seemed to be slow to do that. And and this morning, I'm reading the the reports that uh, we talked about these Chinese quote unquote police stations. Uh, and apparently there's still two of them in Quebec that are still operational. I mean, you know, this, this is information that's there, and, and our federal government uh, doesn't seem to want to take the action that's needed here. No, uh, that is perplexing. Um, I don't know why. I'm not really sure of what's going on here. I can bet that part of this is, and this is a judgment call on Canada's part, that if they expel people here, there'll be quid pro quo expulsions in China. And I, I'll bet you at bottom dollar that Global Affairs or the Foreign Service is telling Mr. Prime Minister, do not expel Chinese diplomats, because then we'll be expelled from, a number of us will be expelled from China as well. So uh, I'm not saying that's the right thing to do. I'm just saying I bet there's a bit of uh, that thinking in this as well. In the case of the, um, the New York case you mentioned a while ago, what New York or the government actually did in the U.S. is prosecute um, Americans of, of, of Chinese origin who, in fact, had been working with these police stations you can if if they're canadians or in that case americans you can charge them you can't charge diplomats you can only expel them exactly uh which is the action i guess some people are looking for here and and i i i don't disagree with what what you're hearing there that Stephen, that uh, that could be retaliation uh against canadian diplomats uh who are in china right now the 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 two michaels come to mind of course well they weren't even uh diplomats and uh, but uh that's that's it's it's troubling to know that that would probably happen. But on the other hand, does that mean that we don't do what we need to do on this side? I don't know. I'm not sure. We, we The RCMP insists it's still investigating. We asked them as recently as last week. 
and they're still investigating these police stations, which were sort of basically regional, provincial Chinese offices ostensibly set up to help people with paperwork, but which then expanded into searching for dissidents and searching for people that China doesn't like and just trying to get to come home. Well, it seems seemingly a new work almost story every day, uh, all, all under the uh, the larger umbrella here of foreign interference. Uh, and uh, it seems to be kind of they do what you want to do in this uh, in this country because we're not going to do a whole lot about it. And that's a very troubling message to get. Uh, keep doing what you're doing, uh, Stephen. The reporting on this is, is troubling but very necessary that we get this information. Uh, thanks for that, and thanks for spending some time with us today. Really appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. I just want to point out that often the victims or the people, the targets of Chinese foreign interference are, in fact, people who come to this country to make a new life and are being manipulated and harassed. Exactly. And for that very reason, because they still have family and friends uh, back home, too. And, and that's used as a, as a, a lever here, too. Uh, thanks again, Stephen. Uh, take care. We'll talk again soon, I hope. You're welcome. Stephen Chase, a senior parliamentary reporter with The Globe and Mail, uh, giving us the latest on the uh, situation about foreign interference. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.